Blog Talk Radio.
or six weeks or six months or a year, that's all you're going to have until everything comes back online, whenever that is. And uh, the minute something happens, the clock starts ticking right then and there between you and when you and your family's food runs out. So the only way you're going to get additional food, the only uh, good way is, is for you uh, to somewhat produce it yourself. That means you're going to have to grow food to eat. Now, maybe you have livestock. I know a lot of folks now have uh, chickens and rabbits and goats and pigs and stuff like that, and that's great. But that's not going to be enough. You're going to have to start growing food immediately, immediately. Whenever, as soon as something happens, no matter what time of the year it is, you're going to have to start uh, producing your own food. And uh, there's a lot of ways you can do this. And uh, when Lucinda comes on, we're going to start talking. We'll talk about those because we're not going to be talking about just about uh, seeds. Uh, we're going to be talking about different gardening things and stuff like that, things that you should be thinking about now uh, before something happens. It's time to learn how to, how to set up your garden and to learn when, what works and what doesn't work is before something happens, when you can still uh, go to the grocery store and buy, uh, you know, corn and uh, and onions and potatoes and stuff uh, instead of depending on them only coming to you from your own garden, right? Okay, so she'll be on just a few minutes. We'll talk about that. I want to remind folks that the uh, Battle Road USA two-day combat carving course is coming up November 9th and 10th. And now this is a great course for uh, all of you folks that have the AR-15, AR-10 rifle platforms and you want to figure out how to, to, to get the most out of your gun, right? Uh, a lot of people recently purchased, uh, according to the sales statistics, a lot of people recently purchased uh, AR-type platform rifles and... And maybe some of them knew how to work them before, and maybe they didn't. But this is going to be a great chance for you to learn how to work your platform correctly. And even for folks that uh, that have been in the military and used uh, the M16 or the or any of the other AR-type platforms, I'll tell you right now that <clears throat> I never miss a chance to take a course, to hone skills. Uh, I, I never miss that chance. Not, even if it's a basic course. Matter of fact, some of my favorite courses are basic courses because those are the ones that are going to get you through rough situations. You know, a basic course are the things that are, knowing your basics, being skilled in your basics and the fundamentals are the things that are going to get you through a rough situation. And if you want to continue on and, and continue on with your training and get more and more, that's great. But having a a very good grasp is going to mean the difference. Uh, it's going to mean the difference in the outcome of any situation where you'll have to use your firearm uh, in defense of yourself or your loved ones. So we'd like to invite everybody, and there's going to be a good uh, gathering of folks coming, and it's a good chance for you to. Uh, see some of your old buddies and stuff like that. That will be November 9th and 10th, a uh, two-day course. And uh, I'll also tell you this, because Battle Road is still a new 
school, and we're still trying to uh, to build our client base up. We're still uh, we're offering these courses. Uh, if you look at all of our course prices, you'll see that they are very competitive. This combat carving course is about half of what you'll pay anywhere else. Not because we have uh, uh, cheated you on the training. Uh, you're going to get uh, you're going to get a full two days worth of training. It's because we're still trying to build a client base and we're trying to offer something extra to get folks to attend, get them to come out to Battle Road and to see why they should be here trained, <clears throat> why they should be using our facilities to train. Because here you're not in a box. You're not stuck in a box. Uh, you're not having to uh, shoot one round every three to five seconds. Uh, we'll have you moving. We'll have you firing rapid fire. <clears throat> and doing all the things that you would normally do uh, in this type of situation, all right? Uh, immediately after that, we're going to have the, uh, the Battle Road uh, five-day precision rifle sniper course. And this is taught by uh, John Hawes. It's our own uh, buddy from the Appleseed Forum, Bolt Gun 71. And uh, this is a fantastic course. Like I said, I, I, every time I, we have a course, I'll take the course too. I took this course the last time it was offered and ran through the course with everybody else. And I'm telling you, it's a fantastic course. Uh, to make sure that you have the skills and techniques to run your centerfire rifle with the optics. We're going to teach you uh, about wind, about range estimation, uh, range determination using your milled-out scopes. Uh, you're going to learn uh, how, to, uh, how to get your cold board data and apply it to your shot. You'll be getting cold, cold board data every day. You'll be getting... Uh, instruction in uh, stress shooting, in close-in shooting, uh, camouflage concealment, movement, and a lot of other things that we're going to cram into the five days, all right? It's going to be a fantastic course, and uh, I invite you guys to come out and take it with us. And once again, uh, this course is about half the price of any comparable course you'll find out there. Courses are running at about 250 to 275 a day for the five days, and we're running right at 100 dollars a day for the instruction. <clears throat> so it is a uh, a thrifty way to get your instruction. Now, this isn't uh, the precision rifle sniper course. is not an operator course. We're not uh, we're not trying to teach you how to be an operator. We're trying to teach you how to get uh, every inch out of your uh, center fire rifle and your optics. <clears throat> if, you want to make, if you want to attend the course, uh, make sure and get in touch with me as soon as possible so that uh, I can make sure that your slot is reserved. If you're going to go to the two-day uh, combat carving course, you can go to uh, www.battleroadusa.com, click on the carving course, and then uh, there will be an uh, Eventbrite link for you to pre-register. Now, for upcoming courses, we have the uh, right now that's on the books. Right now, we've we've got we have several courses that aren't on the books that we're working with, uh, and we have in February uh, the 12th through the 16th, 12th through the 16th, 
we have a combat tracking course. It's a five-day combat tracking course. And this will be with uh, Sergeant First Class John Hurt, uh, former Special Forces uh, 18 leader, and was head of the Army Combat Tracking School at Fort Huachuca, Arizona, while the, while the Army had the school running there. I'm telling you that I'm very excited about the course. I'll be taking it, too, because uh, I think that understanding, and you, know, you can use this also for animals, too. It's gonna, whatever made the track, you're going to be able to track. But understanding how to track an animal or another human being is a very important skill to have in your toolbox, okay? And then in April, we'll have the uh, Battle Road uh, Run and Gun. That'll be on the uh, on the books again real soon, too. But that'll be in April, and that is the 4.5-mile looping course with, uh, with around eight shooting stations for rifle and pistol, as well as obstacles in between each of the uh, shooting stations. And uh, right now, it looks like we're working uh, with another shooting school out of uh, North Carolina to come in and teach a four-day course in April. We haven't, it's not locked down yet, but I believe that the course will be a four-day pre-deployment. It's it's pretty heavy on movement, and you'll be shooting your pistol all four days as well as working a full day on AK-47 and other uh, battlefield pickup-type rifles, you know, teaching you how to run what you pick up uh, off the ground in a situation, how to run it, and then uh, two days with your M4 or your AR-type carbine. And uh, this is going to be another really good course. But check the website, uh, battleroadusa.com, and uh, and we'll post the courses there. Uh, <clears throat> our number, call in, is 347-308-8790. 347-308-8790. And uh, we'd like uh, for you guys to call in and tell your local crews thank you for the work that they're doing with the Appleseed Project. Uh, everyone working with the Appleseed Project is working as a volunteer. No one is getting paid for this. They're doing it uh, out of their sense of obligation to the nation. We're trying to make sure that we're paying, we're paying back and teaching folks, teaching uh, Americans rifle marksmanship and American heritage. But nobody's getting uh, paid for this. It's all volunteer work. People are donating their their time and their money. And we work everybody pretty hard. Uh, and a lot of times we don't give uh we don't give everybody uh, as much thanks as we should. But that's where you guys come in. You can give uh, give us a call now and uh, give thanks to your local crew members, 347-308-8790, because everyone likes, to, everyone likes to hear that they are appreciated. And I'll tell you right now that I appreciate uh, each and every one of you guys uh, currently working with the Appleseed Project and many of the folks uh, who are no longer working with us for one reason or another. 
but uh, who spent a good many years uh, donating their time and effort. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, Kirk Wheeler uh, and uh, Schmidt-Steckler and the DFW crew, Floyd Ferguson and the DFW crew, Ashley Blythe and the uh, DFW crew, for the work that they do. They're, they're doing a fantastic job in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And uh, Larry Kunrod here in the Davila area for the work that they're doing here. And uh, Chuck Weeming, Red Dot. Uh, there's no way that uh, we'd be able to run the, the Texas crew as efficiently as we do without these guys. And uh, we certainly appreciate the work that they do. <clears throat> All right, uh, I see that uh, that Miss Bailey has called in. As I, got, as I told you guys a little bit earlier, we have uh, Lucinda Bailey from Texas Ready Seeds uh, as our guest tonight. And uh, we're going to uh, bring her on now. And Miss Bailey, welcome to the show. Oh, it's great to be with you folks. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. I'm not sure where you are, but I know that you told me that you'd be driving, so I'm guessing you're you're pulled over somewhere on the side of the road. I am. I'm in Pensacola, Florida. Well, thank you for for taking the time to talk to folks tonight. Uh, earlier in the show, I was talking about the you know, we have a, we run a lot of different subjects here on the Rifleman Radio Show, and. Uh, and I know that a lot of times uh, things like uh, things like uh, having uh, preparing your seed banks and stuff like that, they're not as sexy as, uh, as talking about rifles or knives or self-defense and stuff like that. But it's just as important as any of those things and more important. And uh, you'll be telling us about the reasons for that in just a minute, but... First, can you tell us uh, a little bit about yourself and and, and how you ended up uh, running uh, Texas Race Seeds? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, I, I, like many other patriots, continue to look at the headlines and the decline of our country and our culture, open borders, and other major economic problems. I myself was in the financial services industry and did not see any hope for the trillions and trillions of dollars to be repaid. So I began to get concerned and uh, put my own seed bank together for my family, realizing I just couldn't find on the market what was necessary nutritionally and uh, appropriate for my growing area. Of course, I do live in Texas. And we needed heat-resistant, drought-tolerant seeds, and there simply was nothing on the open market. So after putting together, it took me four months, by the way, and I've had, got a background in agronomy. So um, I realized at the end of all that that there probably was a business opportunity and an opportunity to serve the patriot community um, because it had been so difficult to find the right kind of non-GMO, non-hybrid seeds. So uh, after getting all those heirlooms, about 80 varieties together, and getting the nutrition established, what would be an ongoing food stream if I had to do it myself in my own backyard, that's really how we got going. We began to give kits out to family and friends, and here we are. How long is, have, have you guys been in business? Um, probably about four or five years. 
Yeah. And of course, we tested our seeds. Um, we we have test gardens in three states now, which is very exciting. And um, we're getting feedback from all kind of gardens all over the United States now because we do have, I think we're the only seed bank company that has regional kits. And that means right. a lot because when I go to Maine or Colorado and up in the mountains, we're going to have a whole different batch of seeds than we would down here in Texas. Right, and I've been following you guys for quite a while now, and, and your your organization, <laughs> I, I call it that because it's really not just a company, it's, it's it's getting bigger than that, but it's really been growing. Well, right now, you guys, you're one of the main the main push that you're doing right now is selling bulk seeds. But but why why would anyone need to have uh, a large amount of seeds on hand? I mean, why what what would be the benefit of that? Sure, um, if you're not a very experienced gardener. Um, gardening is not an easy set of skills to master, and so you want to have some reserve because if you had a fire, like to, I went through several areas that flooded today, um, if that wiped out your garden, you want to have some reserve so you can replant. A wise farmer is always going to have about a third or a quarter of his seeds held back just in case there's something that occurs, bastard fires or, you know, something. So you're going to need to have that as a as a backup. Um, but then um, the seeds that are available at Kmart, Walmart, Lowe's, or Home Depot, those are only good for one season because you cannot gather seeds from those hybrids and expect to get the same identical vegetable that you saw on the cover of the packet. They were right. hybridized. They, they could be sterile. They could be mutants. Or they, if they do produce, which is a big if, they would revert up the DNA chain, maybe producing a grandparent uh, plant that led to the creation of that wonderful hybrid. So you can't use what's on the, the market. You've got to go back well, to the old-time seeds. Well, that's, a, that's exactly what I was getting ready to ask you next, and that is whenever folks, uh, when they go to your website, they're going to see uh, a listing of the different seeds and stuff that you have, but they'll also have the statement on there that, that your seeds are organic and non-GMO and heirloom quality seeds. And for the folks that aren't familiar with this, can you kind of walk through each of the designations and, and let folks know why they're important? Why is it important to have organic seeds? All right. Well, the word organic refers to the dirt conditions, the quality of the dirt. And so in a discussion of seeds, I'm more interested as a survivalist, as a patriot, in the genetics of the seeds. You can have hybrid seeds that were grown in very nice organic dirt, and those could be perfectly the wrong seeds. So just having organic flashed across the seed packet is no indication that you're out of the woods. So we need to separate those two discussions. So there are two different types of seed categories. It is either an open pollinated seed, meaning you can eat the water or grow the watermelon, eat the watermelon, spit the seeds out, dry them, and then use them the following garden. Those are the old-time seeds. They will re okay. reproduce. In the industry, they say it's true to type. What was on the, the packet of that watermelon um, seed you're going to get the identical watermelon years two all the way, you know, 
from 100 years from now, you will still be getting the identical watermelon. And that's very important. That stability has been established. If it has been demonstrated to have gone on at least 25 generations, then we can now call that seed an heirloom. And that means it's very stable. And those are the kinds of seeds that I have in, in the seed banks or seed kits that we give to the public. Um, to contrast the open-pollinated good seeds for the patriots would be the hybrids. Now, if we did not have economic chaos, you know, facing us in the, you know, in the next few years, um, or I had all the discretionary, you know, money and I could afford to waste money, then I would definitely recommend people grow with hybrids. But those, that's not the world we live in. Hybrids have been put together in the simplest way for people to understand is take an illustration that's closer to home, family pet. You have a lab and I have a poodle. Together they get together and now they have labradoodles. Very cute dog and so forth. But the next generation of dogs, they're not labs, they're not poodles, they're not labradoodles, they're kind of yucky mutts. And that's right. what would go on in the garden and we can't have that because a huge percentage of that seed is, remember, it's sterile like a mule. And that's too risky for food self-sustainability. So we cannot even consider using hybrids. Now, hybrids originally were put together for some very, very good reasons. You have a red geranium. I've got a white one. We want to make pink ones. Okay, that's one reason that hybrids came into existence. Other reasons would be... Um, they needed a, a thick, tough skin as they were going from field to the market. And by the time it gets to your plate, it could actually be 14, 10 to 14 days later. Of course, half the nutrition is gone, and that's yet another reason why people ought to be growing their food in their own backyard. But, but um, hybrids, you know, there is a reason for them. And like I said, if, if our world was perfect, I would recommend you grow with them because there isn't a hybrid vigor called an F1 cross, the very first cross, the labradoodle um, of the, of the uh, garden, is a very strong plant, very disease-resistant in many cases, something that um, you're not going to find in other seeds. And so there is a reason that people have hybrids on the market. And there's a reason economically the seed companies like it because you have to keep coming back and rebuying the seed. So Absolutely. for our purposes, you know, for self-sustainability purposes, we, we don't even want to go to that, you know, part of the spectrum. We want to stay in the open-pollinated heirloom seed world. And what about the the GMO, the non-GMO? There's a lot of talk okay. now All right. that's, about, uh, that's a, that's a good about one. GMOs. Right. Genetically modified organism, or it is sometimes called GEO, genetically engineered organism. That is a subset of a hybrid. Not all hybrids are GMOs, but all GMOs are hybrids. And a hybrid um, that, that is a non-GMO can be created by wind. It could be created by man, but it's a natural process. When you're right. getting into the GMO situation, you have to go at a molecular level. You have to have a mechanistic approach. It's Frankenscience that puts things together. They splice DNA sequences from non-species, 
For example, in corn, they might want it uh, to um, only produce one year, so they take the genes of a preg of a um, infertile woman and they splice that into the corn DNA sequence so that that corn will never reproduce, or a jellyfish, or a salmon, or all kinds of things that don't have anything to do. And of course, I'm a believer in the scriptures. It's pretty clear that, that God has given us all the seed, but he doesn't intend for us to start mixing and matching various species. So when we do that, we go outside the bounds of what many people um, in the religious community are comfortable with. Um, but even if that isn't your, your um, you know, thinking, certainly there has been not enough testing. And you can take an overlay of GEO introduction through the corn and other products, and you will find if you overlay your Crohn's disease, your intestinal cancers, your colon uh, cancers, celiac disease, many other complications to the gut and to the system that, um, you know, this is affecting the human beings. And it affects fer fertility, it protects, uh, it, it uh, uh, has concern with um, sexuality, it has to do with reproduction, it just, there's tumors that um, are just uh, there's, rampant there's, among animals so that are... Much. Yeah, and that yeah, we have not had enough testing. So that's, that's why it. That's many what I was going to say right there. Yeah, they're just totally opposed to it. And there is a great, I mean, this is not my specialty, but I rely on a lot of information from the Institute for Responsible Technology, um, an organization that's headed up by Jeffrey Smith. And if people wanted more information on GMOs, they could go ahead and Google that, and, and that will certainly give them an earful. Well, the, the, the speed at which these uh, GMOs are being created, and like you said, they're, they're, they're fast-tracking them out there. They're getting them out there. People are consuming them in vast quantities. We have no idea what's going to happen. Now, I'm not saying that, that every GMO is going to make you uh, have some kind of genetic defect or make you sick or anything like that at all. I'm just saying we don't know. We don't know exactly. what's going to happen, and you can't, it takes, uh, you know, it may take 25 to 50 years to find out. I know that here they have, uh, in the area that I'm in here in Central Texas, it's, uh, it's, it's very beautiful but very creepy at the same time. You know, when you see the fields, every single plant is the exact same size, shape, color, height. It's, it, everything is, is perfectly made. And then they have the the plants that are altered to uh, so that you can spray, uh, spray pesticides and herbicides on them uh, without any effect. And uh, and this is uh, it's just getting into an area that uh, that we don't really have any knowledge about, and we don't know where it's gonna where it's gonna end up. I also know that the folks that own the the patents. For the seed, because these companies they own they own that seed in its entirety for infinity. And uh, if you have some farmer that uh, that plants any of that seed, any of the seed without the permission of the parent company, they'll be because uh, they have the folks that are going around and doing DNA testing on the fields to make sure that uh, 
that nobody is using seed without their permission, and uh, and they'll seize the crops and file on them. That is very true, and there is a very good documentary that um, is very instructive along these lines called Food, Inc., and um, you can watch it on um, you know, YouTube and or order it for about $15, and that will give you a very good overlay of everything that we've talked about on GMOs. Right, and we've got uh, I've got a couple of friends here locally, uh, a movie director that uh, named Charles Weedman, and he is getting ready to uh, uh, he's getting ready to uh, do a, a show uh, movie on this, and it's about Monsanto and about the the whole GMO organization. I'm excited to see it when it comes out. But the one last one is organic, and we touched on that uh, earlier. Right. But I was wondering if you could tell me that, that when there is, uh, when somebody says something is organic, now it doesn't have, uh, it doesn't have the meaning that I think that a lot of folks think. They, because when people see organic Absolutely. in the food store, they go, "Oh, it's organic. So it's safe. It's great." And organic. Well, it is a very deceptive term. It's been, um, the, the phraseology has changed over the years. In general, it takes about three years for a farm to be able to be certified to be organic, but it is a self-certification. There is not enough manpower at the federal government level <clears throat> to investigate uh, all the people that are claiming to be organic. So right there you have an issue. Secondly, um, and I know for a fact that this does not occur, to continue that certification whenever you use compost, manure, um, or vegeta vegetative compost, you must compost at least six months. I can promise you that that does not occur. Um, right. The, the manure is put onto the field sooner than that in many cases. Now, we have many great organic farmers that want to do right and so forth and are trying to follow every letter of the law. So this is not reflective of every single farmer. Um, but to a plant, the plant does not care where it gets its nutrition because it's going to take and assimilate that nutrition, whether it's nitrogen or boron or magnesium, and it will recombine it internally. So what I say is that it's very important to make sure the plant gets its essential elements. And there are uh, around 91 elements that um, it loves to be involved in. 16 are essential. And so I train people to give the plants those. The problem with composting is you have no way to regulate how much of the boron, magnesium, or whatever your plants are getting. If you are on, let's say, a three-acre piece and you're going to be completely self-sustainable, grow your own food, and then put your table scraps back into your compost heap and then you know, keep that cycle going, that works great if you've got all 16 elements resident on your property. But I can guarantee you, you probably don't. And so over time, food deficiencies or plant deficiencies will occur. And so um, we're not going to, in a self-sustainable you know, environment, we're not going to have the flexibility of gathering a little dirt, sending it off to the testing labs and figuring out what we're low in. So what I, what I uh, teach people to do is to know what the plant deficiencies are through pictures and photographs and so forth, 
know how to properly feed your, your uh, vegetables and fruits. And at the end of the day, you're going to go ahead and have um, absolutely sweet-tasting vegetables high in the BRICS index, B-R-I-X. It's a measurement of nutrition within that um, plant. And actually, you're going to do better in this method than you would with the organic because you'll get to the outcome that you want, that the public you know, thinks they're getting when they're purchasing organic. You'll get to that outcome quicker, and it will be a measurable result. You can duplicate it. And that method of gardening is called the Mitlider method. It's been around about 50, 60 years. It's been tried in all kinds of environments from high altitude to Sahara Desert. It's been all over the world. And uh, so we are teaching people to grow the Mitlider way. And if you do this, your very first garden can be an overwhelming success. And you will produce enough nutrition, unlike other methods like the square foot gardening method, which I don't mind people starting and beginning because that is a good beginner's method, but please don't stay there. In the survival world, you're going to want to move all the way up to the Mitlider method so that you can produce enough good produce healthy for your family. Right. And and I would guess that the, the bottom line that people can take from this is that the things that are in your soil can end up in your plants in the garden, and those things are going to end up in you. So you, you'll have okay. to be you have to be mindful of the things uh, in your soil. You you have to be you have to be very watchful of the things that you're using that you're that you're putting in your soil. And I don't know uh, is there uh, if you are taking manure from animals that uh, are being heavily treated with, uh, uh, with uh, medicines and stuff like that, uh, uh, and using that manure. Yeah, that's an issue. And a true organic person like my, you know, I try to do everything as organically as possible with the exception that I have a regimented and disciplined feeding schedule of, of fertilization for my plants. Um, but it's very true. If you use manure that comes from cows that have been given antibiotics or, or chickens, that's another, you know, place you can find a lot of abuse. Um, they they overwhelm, they give steroids as well to these animals. And so there's fast growth, which is unnatural to the birds. They can find the birds or something. I think that's extremely cruel. And they cut off the beaks because the conditions are so crowded. Well, you know that that has got to affect the quality of the meat because um, there's stressors within the body of the birds. And they they have um, fixed it so that the, the males, which do not beef up uh, as quickly um, in the bird world are removed and, and uh, they use the females that develop the, the big breast meat and uh, sometimes the chickens actually, their legs break because of the weight of um, the unnatural amount of uh, breast uh, uh, meat that this particular chicken is um, producing. And so yes, I don't want to have manure from those kind of animals. They're unhappy animals. Um, the stressors that are in the body, you know, come through. And uh, so I want to be very much in charge of 
of uh, what is going into my compost heap. So I only do recommend free-range manure um, to to my clients. Absolutely. Uh, that's what I use because well, all of my cattle, none of the, none of the cattle have uh, they don't have any hormones. Uh, they hmm. only get one initial vaccination at birth, and then uh, and then they get no uh, no corn seed. They they're straight uh, grass and uh, uh, and native hay that uh, that I produce, and that's how they're fed. And I, I feel like their manure is is pretty safe because this is this has been going on for about uh, thirty years now. So wow, that's exciting. Well, there is a lot to this growing business, and um, you know I just recommend that people jump in, even if it's only a four foot by four foot garden. And uh, fortunately for us in Texas, we can generally grow year-round, um, even if you have to put a little cover over it when uh, it gets uh, to be wintertime. But uh, gardening is not an easy set of skills, and so I, I'd like people to start off a little bit smaller than they anticipated so they'll be successful and then be motivated to learn some more things the next season. Well, that and that is one of the things I, I keep telling folks about this, but like I said, I think a lot of times when I start talking about seeds or gardening, uh, not everybody, but a lot of folks uh, turn down the volume because because they're, they don't want to think about that. But I try and and, and get across the idea to folks that <clears throat> if there is some type of a natural or man-made cessation of services, then mm. Uh, outside of the amount of food, whatever amount of food you have stored, if you have two weeks or two months or a year, then that's what you have. And if the event goes past that, then you're left now with a big hole, and that is where you're going to get your food from. And the only real answer is going to be for you to produce the food yourself. That means that the minute that something happens, especially if it's uh, if it's a large-scale uh, event the minute that something happens, the clock starts ticking, and you need to you need to start uh, right at that minute uh, gearing yourself up to produce your own food, and and that is going to be a dangerous thing for you to do if you haven't been doing it already. Uh, well, that's true I know a lot of people first... think that gardening is easy. But mm. Go ahead. The very first two years of gardening, if you get any produce at all, you have a green thumb. So 100%, seriously, 100% crop failure is the norm for beginning gardeners. Right, so right. We want to give and the them first few some... years for me, I was just going to say the first few years for me, uh, the the first year, of course, was uh, was a hard learning curve. But the second year, I mean, everything was going great as far as uh, what I was doing and the health of the plants and everything else. But then you have outside factors too, which uh, things that you can't, you really can't predict. Like, uh, uh, you know, five or six hundred million uh, grasshoppers, or uh, an earlier late freeze, or a drought, or things like that. There are things that you you can't predict, but like you said, whenever for, when folks first start out gardening, it's uh, it's not what they think it's going to be, 
And it's a very, uh, it's a lot harder to tell folks that now is the time for you to learn and make your mistakes. If you make your mistakes now, all it means is you're just going to have to drive into town and you're going to have to purchase the food from HEB or something like that. It doesn't mean that now uh, people are going to have to go on half rations uh, or less because because you couldn't grow anything out of your garden. The time to to learn to grow, the time to learn what mistakes you're going to make, what 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 grows and doesn't grow in your soil in your area is is before something happens, before you're depending on that food. That's very wise. Now here's the other thing: you can be very good at growing flowers or potentially herbs, and then those skills are a great introduction, but that's nothing like food production skills. Generally, in the herb world, you're not going to have much insect problems whatsoever because the pheromones from the herbs repel bugs. In fact, that's why I like planting all kind of herbs intermittent in my gardens because then I have a natural bug repellent. I'm planning right, for the day a, when there's no, no electricity and no ability to go to Lowe's or Home Depot and buy, buy garden supplies that we're so used to using. So we've got to get back to some of the creative and natural ways. Um, your marigolds, for example, will repel aphids and other things. So you plant them by your tomatoes. Your tomatoes love carrots, but your tomatoes and your peppers really don't like each other very much. So you shouldn't be planting those side by side, row by row. So these are some things that you need to learn. It's called intercropping or companion planting. Um, there are antagonistic plants that you don't want to be, you know, they're bad boys. You put them in their own little corner, and dill and fennel <laughs> would fall into that category. <laughs> but there's other plants that are called the hospital or the doctor plants because you can put a sick plant by them and voila, everything gets better in a month. It's just crazy. But these are the kinds of things you learn in your own garden over time. Now, the good news, right. Mike, is that, is, is that when you use these heirloom seeds and you plant that watermelon seed, you're going to gather seed from the very sweetest of the watermelons that you know, are produced and the very strongest. So the next year when you plant your own heirloom seeds, then that whole collection, that strain, is going to get stronger and stronger, better and better. And so this is another reason why people should start using the heirloom seeds their family is going to eat on from now to forever because they will actually make those seeds stronger and better for their own ecosystem. Well, okay. And... uh Going back to a minute earlier what we were talking about, I know that I plant uh, uh, mint because it's, yes. it's really easy to grow. And it uh, it also, what I've seen is it, uh, I plant a big, thick border on some of my uh, my larger containers, and, uh, and it really helps in keeping the plants free of some, uh, of some of the types of insects. And That's right. And the mint grows really and easy. It's an invasive species once you get it going. Um, there are various kinds of mint, just like many kinds of basil, and the best mint to use for bug repelling would be the peppermint. And the peppermint is particularly good against cockroaches. It's just a fantastic uh, thing to put right. at the end of each of your rows. 
Right, and I, I always like to see people. You know, that's it. That's it. That's the other thing mm-hmm. for the peppermint. And also, I mean, at the end of a day of, of gardening and stuff, a lot of times I'll I'll take a uh, you know a big sprig of it and just use it almost like a almost like a like a hand sanitizer or washer because I, I love the the smell. That's right. Uh, that it gives my hands. Well. Uh, why, uh, from a, a, I'm not sure how to ask this right, but why should folks uh, come to to Texas Ready and buy uh, bulk seeds instead of uh, instead of just going around to the different like the big box stores or to uh, the hardware stores and uh, buying their seeds there? Well, there's a couple of reasons. First of all, it's very tough to find an heirloom seed. Um, at those box stores. They're usually not labeled properly. Um, and some of the hybrids are not labeled properly either. So they're not identified. And how are you going to know? There are over 1,500 heirloom breeds just for tomatoes. Now, unless you're an agronomist that's been you know, looking through seed catalogs all your life, there's no way that you're going to know whether one is a hybrid or one is an heirloom. Now, of the 1,500 heirlooms, which grow well in your area? I doubt that the average neighborhood gardener has had the opportunity, like we have on at Texas Ready, to experiment with a wide range of these heirlooms. I know which ones are you know, going to grow in your region. And um, Texas Ready has, like I said, regional kits. So if you're from uh, California or Oregon or Maine or Florida or whatever, you're going to have seeds that actually work in your geographical area. You don't get that at a box store because they buy on a national distribution model. Secondly, the seeds that we have are agriculture grade. Now, if you have a one packet of seeds that cost you a couple bucks at Walmart or whatever that don't seem to come up right, well, maybe it was scheduled for, you know, good production in Kansas. But in Texas, we need heat-resistant, drought-tolerant varieties. So the seed itself isn't the right breed for your location in most cases. But beyond that, I've got access to actual agricultural-grade seeds, which have better germinations than you typically are going to get at the box store level, which is Class B seeds. And so I've taken Class A seeds and repackaged that for, for the survivalist or uh, my friends that are the patriots that are, you know, concerned about the economy. So you're getting a much right. better rate of seed. Well, you're going to get a lot better deal on it, too, because I've, you know, I've, I've bought seeds, uh, uh, buy packets at a time, and it gets very expensive very quick. And uh, it's certainly better than than buying the the plants already started, but it's still very expensive if you're. And I'm not talking about uh, just buying a pack of seeds for the coming year. I'm talking about buying enough seeds uh, that you could feed yourself and and whoever else. And the other thing is that uh, is that when I was doing it that way, uh, I also wasn't very good on making sure that I was doing it. Uh, so I think that, that when you buy the seeds in bulk, and like you said, for your zone, because the Texas Ready seeds are going to be zoned for the folks 
for where they're going to be grown, either in the northern region or the southern region, right? That is correct. Mm-hmm. And there, and you already have, you guys have already figured out the amount that somebody needs if it's just a couple or if it's just a. Well, that's right. We have. Go ahead. It's not only a nutritionally balanced set of seed. There's 80 varieties in each kit, but it's the right amount of seed to feed that group of people. When you buy a, a seed packet, you have no idea. It says 2.0 grams or whatever. How many people does that feed? Nobody knows. But I've done the math. I know. And so I know what it's going to take. And a lot of times you're going to buy a $2 packet of tomato seeds and you're going to get maybe 30, 40 seeds. I don't believe in that. In my smallest kit, I'm going to give you well over 1,000 seeds in just the tomatoes that we have in the kit. So my concern is that 30 seeds are not going to get the job done. So... What I've done is, is um, of the 1,000 tomato seeds, let's say, we've divided it into six different kinds because tomatoes have a lot of responsibilities, and they're almost a food group as far as I'm concerned. We need some Absolutely. like aroma tomato, you know, that's going to make the pizza sauce for your kids. We've got some for beefsteak for when you get your venison burger. We've got the large cherry reds so that you can have um, stuff for salads. Well, here's another thing you're probably going to want to can or dehydrate. But I don't want to bring out my, my canning equipment if I only am going to get a few different tomatoes. And there are certain types of tomatoes that are regular but small producers for an entire season. There are other types of tomatoes that have a big harvest that comes due in, say, a two-week period. Now, those are the kind that are great for canning because I'm going to have a bushel of tomatoes to work with, not you know, a handful. So I've done some of that thinking for folks so that they're really going to be able to make it for what's coming. I've got a, uh, a question from one of the folks. Will you, will you take a question? Oh, let's try. Okay. I've got uh, Scott. This is Freedom V. He's up in Minnesota. Uh, Hi, uh, this is Freedom. Scott. Hi. Hi, Scott. I'm doing um, great. My question is... Uh, uh, I'm excited that there's a a package that has the uh, differentiation for the uh, climate zones. That because uh, I've I've wanted to have some extra seeds in the past, and I've gotten uh, some some quote unquote seed banks, and I have no idea um, if they're any good or not. But uh, I'm looking forward to uh, to getting your your uh, zone-specific seeds, and then uh, I, I have a lot to learn about gardening. I know just a tiny bit that I've done some tomatoes in the backyard and uh, been trying to learn from my dad, who's been gardening for the last 40 years and, and growing crops, but he's grown up and, and grown crops in the in the big agri mindset that uh, he's got a and, and now with the crop prices, he's, he's feels like he's got to plant from edge to edge and and get everything out of the ground that he can. Um, and that's really hard on the bees when it takes out some of the other fauna. Uh, fortunately, yeah. we do have some some set aside for the pheasants, 30 acres for the pheasants that the bees like in uh, in natural flowers. Um, mm. 
what my, so my question is, uh, sometimes in some of the literature that I've seen as far as seed banks, they've talked about um, either just keeping them cool, dry, down in the basement or whatever, and sometimes I've seen um, putting them in a freezer, just putting them in a freezer, ruin them, or uh, what's the best uh, storage for them? That is a good question, and as a matter of fact, it took me on a long journey. I went up to the National Seed Saving Laboratory in Colorado Springs, and I spent a considerable amount of time asking that very same question. Now, of course, that was after doing a lot of research and, and so forth before I even, you know, got to that place, but here's the truth, um, and this is from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. When you have a collection of seeds, which you would in the seed bank, ours in particular, 80 varieties, you're going to have some fragile seeds like your dill, your lettuce, and so forth. You're going to have some hard-shelled seeds like your peas, your bean, your corn. The peas, right. bean, and corn do very well in the freezing environment. But okay. if you start putting many of your other kinds of seeds in the freezer, and I'm talking about not the nitrogen-based freezing systems that they have at the world seed-saving labs or even the one in Colorado Springs, because you and I do not have that technology. Yeah, exactly. It's just a normal freezer. Those are not going to be good for the fragile seeds. So what what the USDA is saying is take that collection, put it into a a refrigerator, the one that has the cold drinks and the extra beer for the party that's in the garage. That's perfect. That's the best place, 40 degrees is optimum temperature when you have a collection of seeds. That is 40 degrees, okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now you can go as hot as air-conditioned pantry, but you don't want to go any hotter than that because heat is one of the um, uh, great elements that will decline germination. Extra light is. That's why we have our seeds in a completely, you know, uh, an ammo can that has a moisture barrier around it to protect the seeds. Mm -hmm. So a 60 to 65 degree basement is going to be okay if you don't have room in the fridge. Yeah. That's where I keep mine. That's where I keep mine. I I take my seeds and I've gotten them. I've I've got the seeds that are uh, arranged usually by a specific type, and then I put them, I just save uh, like uh, mason jars and stuff like that. I'll pack them in there nice and tight. And then uh, write the you know the type and date and stuff on it. And then I put them down in the cellar inside another container, and it's about 66 degrees there year round. That's lovely. Do you vacuum yeah. pack them? No, um, they no, say no, that's also not a good idea to do uh, either because seeds are living organisms. They need organisms. the oxygen. They need a little transfer, and there will be enough inside a mason jar or a four-mil plastic bag. That's how we store our seeds and and uh, so forth. But, um, yes, all of our stuff is either in medical-grade capsules or the four-mil plastic. Both methods were uh, totally agreed upon by the USDA when I went and toured them. I just use the glass now because I have had trouble in the past with uh, mice. And uh, mm-hmm. they'll go through anything except the glass. And I've even oh, seen no, no, like the ammo cans. They won't get through the ammo cans. cans they won't get through. Another. No, no. They, yeah, exactly. They won't get yeah, through but, the ammo cans. But glass can. is fantastic. Yeah. As long as there's no light that can, you know, permeate that glass. Right. Light They're down in the inside, these, 
the seller, but then I put them inside another container yeah, to make sure that there, that there is no light. But I've also seen uh, those, uh, the, the mice. I've seen the little tiny uh, teeth scratch marks on the edge of the top. So you know, I, know that they, <laughs> I know that they're trying to get in there at times. But the ammo cans are fantastic. And that's how uh, the seeds from Texas Ready ship to you. They're in the, an airtight uh, metal ammo can, and those are perfect. Nothing's going to chew in there. How long yeah, is the have, free shipping uh, with the the promo code um, well, available? You just go ahead and use that promo code, and uh, great things will happen. We'll do that free shipping for you. Why don't we say from now till the end of the year, because we want you to get all your Christmas presents. Okay. okay. Now, I had a question, too, from one of the folks in the chat room. They said that... Uh, at first, they said they tried the promo code and it didn't give a discount, but then it said it gave me free shipping. So that's what they're—that's what the the promo code is going to give, right? Yes, absolutely. Okay. And if right. you if you go ahead and buy the thirty person kit, I mean, we're talking you know a significant expense because seeds are quite heavy. Um, right. The actual container is going to be over fifty pounds. Wow. Um, it's, got, it's got the books and <laughs> no, that's right a seed bank. <laughs> yeah, really, really. Well, you know, some some of um, the folks that are um, p- preparing as a group, maybe uh, a team, or some folks are doing the whole street, and, you know, they're dividing it up. Whoever's got the best light, then you do this crop, and, you know, we'll do this over here, and then we have a an elderly couple. Well, they're off the hook because we're just going to be good citizens and take care of them. So there's various people, churches, many churches are getting, you know, the larger seed banks, community gardens and things like that. So a shipped seed bank, what's the roughly what would the expected life, you know, you okay, would want to be planting those within five years, ten years, four, six years? Four to six years. Yes, four to six years. And four to know, six each, years. That's right. Each uh, breed of seeds has a innate DNA, you know, time limit on it set up by God. You and I are not going to... You know, change so we that want to all. do our learning, do our learning, and uh, figure out how to do the seed saving and and plant enough of them, and then save the seeds there you go. for the next there you time. Go. That's right there. Yeah, you don't you don't so, want to just be holding them back and not using them. You want to be using you know right. using and rotating out of your stock. Well, that's right. And and what you don't want to do is when let's suppose I did watermelon. Okay, now in the smallest kit just to show you how generous we are with our seeds. A small kit for two people comes with 24 watermelon seeds. That's just <laughs> for one breed. Okay, we have, we have two breeds of watermelon. That one breed with 24 seeds is going to produce about 600 pounds of watermelon. Now, I don't know any couple <laughs> that eat that much watermelon, just between you and me, but let's suppose they loved it. But when they plant that, that is going to produce over 20,000 seeds for the next year. Now, they're not right. going to use them all. I got that. They're going to take watermelon 7 because it's very sweet, watermelon 9, whatever. And they're going to take 100 seeds so they get some biodiversity. So they end up starting with 24, ending up with maybe 300 of the very mm-hmm. best seeds. They're not going to mix them, okay? If they saved a little bit, like I said, this off a good farmer is always going to have some seed in reserve. Okay, they're not going to mix envelope 2013 with the new stuff from 2014. You're going to completely have a new envelope, relabel, and that kind of thing. Because let's suppose 
this new stock ends up with some virus or bacteria that it picks up in the soil, you want to be able to go back to that original seed packet and start all over in a different location in your garden. So you don't want to mix the different years' worth of collection. So what kind right, of directions are come with your seeds? Is there a... Is there some uh, education information with it also or on well, your website? On my website, we've got probably 30 to 50 pages of information. You can just click on um, past newsletters, and that will give you a lot of, lot of information. And that information is typically stuff that is not found in the books that we recommend. Now, in the two-person kit, we don't offer books because there are many gardeners that are pretty – you know, competent. They already have all these books, so we, you know, we don't force you to buy books that you don't need. In the four-person right. kit called a lockbox, we give you what we consider to be the training manual for the entire kit. The last half of the book gives you one whole page. How do you plant asparagus? What does it look like when it's ready to harvest? What do you do to prep the bed for next year? Things that, you know, the, the back of a seed packet is kind of a joke pretty generic mm-hmm. information. Um, make sure the soil is loose. Make sure you plant in the sun. Be sure and give it plenty of water. That's not too helpful. And uh, so with pictures, you get a whole description from A to Z, asparagus to zucchini. You'll really know how to do it. So that edible garden book is just fantastic. The Safe, which is a book for six or a case, a kit for six adults, uh, a typical family for for teenagers, this will work great. You're going to get the edible garden and square foot gardening book, which is, like I said, beginning gardener. So your questions are going to be asked. Um, it gives you a planting schedule in there, so it's very helpful. When you do the vault, which is for 12 people, and that would be like three families at the end of a cul-de-sac, you're going to get five books, including the seed, the seed book, which shows you how to properly save your seeds. So that's a very, very good investment right there. And then if you get the treasury, you'll get six books. Are you going to need your you'll get um, all the canning um, that you need to know how to do, the self-sufficient okay, books. I brought so your you bag can, in and hung uh, a towel up. But do I your compost and so forth. It's very good edu- education. Okay, that, uh, that sounds really great. Let's, let's talk about... Uh, You've brought up seed saving several times, and uh, and this is going to be a very important part of this process. And, and I know that there's a there are a lot of different methods, and there there are methods that are specific to the uh, to the plants you're working with. But can you give us a uh, a quick primer on how you would uh, save some seeds, like perhaps like from a tomato? Okay. Well, tomato is one of the um, kinds of seeds that do well if you ferment them. So what you're going to do is you're going to take one tomato from three plants. So now you have a little biodiversity. These should be mature tomatoes. They shouldn't be overripe, but they definitely need to be to the ripe stage. What you're going to do is get, I usually use a two-cup clear Pyrex uh, measuring cup. And I'm going to take my hand and I'm going to squeeze the pulp out of the three tomatoes. So it's nice and gooey. I do this outside, by the way. 
um, then that usually fills up, say, a, a, a cup of uh, the, the red liquid with the seeds in it. I'm going to pour an equal amount of water. So in this case, I'd pour another cup of water, and I'm going to stir it. And then I put it into a dark cupboard, and I'll check on that every two, three days. It's, it's going to smell like you're making beer, but that's really okay. Things are going to a little science project here. They're going to ferment. And when that fermentation process is over, in about a week, week to ten days, you'll know it because the bubbles will stop. Um, there's going to be a crusty, um, either yellow or, or white film. You rinse all that off in a colander, and then you take a cookie sheet. You can either just put it straight to the cookie sheet, or you can put um, something like wax paper. You don't want to put a paper towel because it's going to cling to the seed body. So you don't want something fibrous like that. But you're going to go ahead and, and put your seeds from the tomato um, out there. Now, the fermentation process has inoculated those seeds against future viruses and bacteria that those tomato seeds are going to face. And you have now improved your um, germination by about 5 or, or so percent just by virtue of you going through the fermentation process. Now, I would never have guessed that that is the proper way to save your tomato seeds had I not had that book. So you're going to find that seed saving is not very intuitive. But through long trial and error, <laughs> human beings have come across, you know, best ways to do it. Some you have to scarify. You have to um, slice the seed um, hole open. Some you have to get into a pretty cool or dormant um, temperature range for a month or so. You have to uh, trick them into thinking that they've, they've gone through a winter. Um, but I would never, you know, guess this, and you won't either, on uh, the 80 different kinds of seeds. Sure, some That's like right. watermelon right. or squash, you know, they're pretty easy. We, we know we've been through the spitting contests and seen the, the uh, watermelons pop up the next year. Um, but, but not everything's as easy as a watermelon. Right. But there is, there, there are specific ways that you'll need to learn to in order to harvest the seeds that you're planting or from the from the uh, crops that you have planted because that that is a very important part of this whole process that uh, because God forbid that we that we end up in some long term uh, grid down situation, but if if it were to happen, then you would need to ensure that you kept getting uh, viable seed. And the only way to make sure you're doing it right is to do it. And that means you you need to get the seeds that you're going to work with, plant the seeds, grow the crops, uh, harvest the produce, and then harvest the seeds from the produce, and then plant those again the next year and see uh, see if your technique is correct and if you're able to uh, you're able to uh, perpetuate that line of crops and there's no substitute for doing it you can you can read as many books as you want but there's no substitute for doing it you're going to have to do it you're going to have to get your hands dirty and do this in order to see what works and what doesn't work uh, and it could be 
not just from Minnesota to Texas. It could be uh, 100 yards away in my neighbor's garden, what's working for him and what's not working for, for me. So you're going to have to... Uh, you're going to have to start doing this now. That's the only thing I can say. Well, there's a couple other reasons you need this book, Seed to Seed. First of all, if um, we continue to have a decline in bee population through bee colony collapse, um, it could be po- it could, we could come to a situation where the commercial farmers are out of business. There are 51 crops that require the beehives to be transported to the fields in order to get the pollination that's necessary. Now, if the bee colony collapse um, occurs in our lifetime, which some are predicting, then that's going to be a really big problem for these commercial farmers. But for the backyard gardener that has an acre or less to, to play with, we can pollinate anything that we need to grow. That's, that's number one. But we have to know the right techniques and how to do that. And uh, the book Seed to Seed discusses that. But beyond that, there's a much more important reason why we need to know. Um, the book Seed to Seed shows you how to protect the DNA seed stream so that you can keep your heirlooms pure. Now, with all this hybrid pollen going through the air, and I mean, you're going to have people that are incorrigible. They won't listen. They are going to continue to grow the wrong stuff. That hybrid pollen is going to come over your fence. It's a silent killer. It's going to mate and mix with your beautiful heirloom squash. And when it does, you won't know it. But the next year when it is sterile and it doesn't produce fruit, you've been had. Now that is not a good place for your family to find yourself. So there are techniques where you can uh, close off pollination at certain times. You control the pollination. And this is a five-minute procedure in the garden, but it is very technical thank goodness for pictures and photographs to show you how to do this in this book, but it will exactly show you when and how to self-pollinate that squash or cucumber or watermelon so that you can maintain the purity of your own seed stream and so your stuff doesn't get hybridized. It's very easy to hybridize things that are in, let's say, the cabbage family. You've got your broccoli You've got your Brussels sprouts, mustard, collards, cabbage. They all mate together. And you will, if you don't know what you're doing, create inadvertently hybrids. We don't want you to do that. Also, the squash and the pumpkins got ruined last year because of that. <laughs> Sorry to hear that. Yes. <laughs> now it is possible to grow six different kinds of squash slash pumpkins that will not intermate but you're going to have to know this, what they are at the species level. And this book gives you a nice chart so that you can, you know, have a pumpkin and have the squash that you need. But you just can't have it all. Sorry. <laughs> well, we were talking about that about uh, in the chat room, at least, about that there are some things that, are, that seem to be, at least for me, a lot easier to grow. And uh, as Freedom was saying, the more he learned... And the more he was trying gardening, the more he was storing dehydrated food because oh, of the difficulties in it. And because, uh, I, yeah. was, I was agreeing because unless, you, unless least, I wanted to live off watermelons and squash and jalapenos, which seemed, I had, seemed to have no problem whatsoever growing, uh, then uh, I, I've got to keep working on my game. 
we all do. Um, this is a never-ending process. I don't know a single gardener that can say, oh, I've got it all, you know, wrapped up. And I, I am just, I take my hat off to the pioneers every day I'm in the garden. They don't have chainsaws. They didn't have to, you know, the tools. It's just amazing to me, the guts that they went, you know, forward. No and, killers. Uh, yeah, exactly. Simply amazing. Both men well, and I women. I just... Uh, on the on the subject of uh, of pollination and stuff, I keep a uh, and I'll grow uh, in my garden. I'll grow uh, the heirloom plants along with, and I'll plant hybrids too because, uh, like you said, there you know there are things that you can get from the hybrids that uh, uh, that are really good, especially you know the ones that have been developed specifically for certain things, but. <clears throat> Is there uh, is there problems with growing uh, hybrids and uh, uh, and heirloom seeds in the same garden? There are, but there are some techniques. Um, caging is a possibility. If, you're going to have to be real specific about which uh, type of fruit or vegetable you're trying to grow, because there's different strategies for maintaining the purity of those. And certain families will mate with certain other, you know, families. But then there's others, like I said, in, in the, if it's a squash hybrid of, of one species and yet I'm planting another species, that is not going to be an issue. And, okay. And well, right now, this, the, only thing, do, this, this so the only thing I do is... It's not a problem for the first generation, but it's a problem for the second generation? Um if they be if they may, it will be a problem for the second generation. Um, it, of the squash, they will not mate at all, and and you can have six different kinds of uncontaminated heirlooms. But you've got to know your species, and you've got to know. I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of squash types, so you've just got to be sure that it's locked into species A and that you're planting something that's a species B, C, D, E, F, um, and that you don't really have something that was miscategorized as species B. Right, and the way, the okay. way that I keep from doing it right now is that I keep, whenever I plant the uh, things that I, because I don't know enough about it, when I plant things that I have questions about, I just I keep them separated by a good distance. And I don't just mean a couple of feet. I mean I have like five different planting areas, and they're all separated from each other by maybe 100 to to 200 feet. And I just plant them uh, in different areas so they're not right next to each other. And this book is really uh, helpful because if you um, – it will give you the, the recommended distances. So that's another reason that this is a great tool. And it really does belong. I mean, security is one thing. We want patriots to know a lot about that and, and so forth. Um, food production is, is another really critical area. We want people to be experts. Now, maybe you're not inclined to do that, and I, I got that. Um, You've got to know a little bit about all these different areas that we're going to need if, if um, uh, it all hits the fan like some of us think it might. Um, but you better have someone on your team. If you are not the green thumb, you better team up with someone that 
really loves this area and is going to go deep in this area and is going to get the books. If the Internet goes away, most of this knowledge that we're picking up, oh, I'll go Google it. It's all gone. That's why you've got to have these books in reserve, in a closet, where you can pull them out as reference material and really you know, know the stuff. Now, I read 200-plus books in order to get us down to these, and I was you know, very pleased after the whole thing was said and done that we've got the number one seed-saving book, the number one canning book, the number one how to be Amish and be happy about it book. Some days I'm less happy than others, to be, be honest, truthful. Um, the number one um, gardening book in America. I mean, out of six books, here we are at the top of, you know, the game. And so these aren't just filler books. These, if, if I had a situation where it was going to be, I'm going to save some flower seeds, some uh, evergreen seed and some vegetable seed, or I can have this other reference book. It might be a little tougher to understand, but it's purely food production. I'm going for the food production. And the same with these other gardening books. I've really focused on what does it take to be, you know, food production. So I think that um, um, I stand by these selections. I think that they're they're, they're just what Americans need that want to be, you know, better nutrition, lower food bills, and then be self-sufficient if necessary. Well, I've got the self-sufficient uh, gardener handbook. I've got several others, but the self-sufficient gardener is one of the ones that I mainly rely on. And then whenever I have a question and uh, I look it up online, a lot of times I'll try and just print that out and stick it right in the stick it right in the book. Uh, oh, where, I, where I have the question. Uh, now, let me ask you, uh, you know, when I was talking earlier about this, I was saying that when something happens, uh, especially if you don't know how long something is going to be, like if it's, if it's a tornado or a hurricane or something like that, if there's some event, then you, you have kind of an idea that, that there's going to be a, a fairly uh, rapid endpoint to that. But if there's not, if it's something, uh, some larger event, then the clock is going to start ticking right then on uh, on you trying to make it to the point where you can have food uh, past what you have stored and in reserve. Uh, if something, say something happens tomorrow <laughs> and folks need to start, uh, they need to start getting food from their garden. I know it's a, this is a bad time of the year, but say this was uh, in the spring. If something happened, they said, okay, I, I've got to go get my seed bank right now. I've got to put some seeds in the ground right now. What is uh, like a typical uh, amount of time? What block of time are they looking at All right. between when they get you the can... seed in the ground and they can start eating? All right. <clears throat> in 28 days, if you plant radishes and lettuces, you could have the beginnings of a salad. Um, at 55 days, you can have certain beans. At um, 65 days, you could have some cherry tomatoes and beginning to get some of the larger tomatoes. Um, all the way up to your watermelons, which could be 110 days. Some of your squashes are going to be 110 days. Your pumpkin will be 115 days. So that's why I really like like the idea of get the garden going and then as one crop, you know, falls away, 
um, and is out of production like my eggplants. You know, they're worthless at this point. So they've, I've pulled them up from the garden. There's no more squashes. I've got a couple pumpkins, let's say, um, still on the vine. And, and the field will store the food pretty well, too. I've picked varieties that go in the kit that store field ready so you don't have to worry about um, dehydrating or freezing or whatever. Um, some of the onions will just stay field ready until you're ready to, to pick that up for the for the soup. Um, but I I like the fact that I've got my my garden continuously growing. Now you can use row covers, R O W row covers that would just come over. Your your uh, cabbage family loves the cold, and the cold actually makes it taste sweeter. Your kales can be grown in the snow, believe it or not. Your collards, I've had collards that lasted over two years. They can last three years. I've picked varieties that have longevity, um, and you can you know, eat on them for all these different days. So um, those are some other things that you'll find in this seed kit. Um, I don't, I've met a lot of the other owners um, of seed companies and so forth, and I don't know that they even grow their own stuff. Um, right. So that's another advantage. You can pick up the phone. If you've got a garden question Monday through Thursday, um, I'd be glad to help you out. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I'm at an event, either a gun show or an NRA show, or um, this weekend I'm going to a survival show to teach folks how to how to garden, put their emergency gardens in, and feed their families. Um, but I want you guys to succeed, and so uh, I do welcome, uh, you know, the the calls. And if you stump me, I'll send you a book. So far, so good. I've only got <laughs> Well, what are uh, potatoes only grown from pieces of potatoes? Can you grow? I have a whole thing on my uh, website on potato growing, which I think okay. is find really fascinating. And if you're in the south, um, sorry about this, guys, but um, white potatoes don't do that great. Your yellow potatoes will do very well, your reds, your purples, and, of course, sweet potatoes are the bomb, you know. We can grow sweet potatoes like nobody's business down here. I, I still haven't harvested my sweet potatoes. Um, they will tell me when they want to be pulled. They'll all turn brown almost in one week, and then I'll get my pitchfork out there. And um, uh, this year it was so cool. I didn't even, I, I didn't put any plants in. These are just volunteers from the previous year, and I should end up with at least a bathtub full of sweet potatoes. Of the sweet yeah, they're wow. the most nutritious of the potatoes. But, yeah, there's a whole um, probably a two- or three-page description on how to plant your potatoes to get the best yield. Just go to Can my website. Can you leave website. some of the potatoes in the ground over the winter? Um, it depends on if you get a hard freeze and how much moisture, but that's exactly what happened. I didn't know that he even had any sweet potatoes still in my flower bed. But sure enough, <laughs> um, in the spring we found out. <laughs> well, I know that we used to we used to always in the potato fields would be would be fenced off. It'd be directly behind the barn and fenced off. And once we were through harvesting, uh, my uncle said that you were not ever supposed to leave any potatoes in the ground, you know. Uh, and then they would turn the hogs in there, and the hogs would find every single one. And uh, they'd also turn the uh, turn the soil mm-hmm. over and manure it. Absolutely great technique. Um, that's really using nature in a positive way 
and not duplicating effort. And again, you're not using any kind of um, energy. You're just letting nature take its course. And uh, you know, the, the pigs become the tilling machines. And uh, that is a very fertile place to put your garden for the following year. Well, you know, I was reading strategy. something just a little while back about the about potatoes, and the author of this particular uh, article was saying that really the humans weren't supposed to be eating potatoes, and that the potatoes were uh, were a not too distant relative of uh, uh, morning glory. They are a relative. Yeah, sweet potatoes. Um, are a relative of morning glory, whereas regular potatoes, I believe, are um, part of the, um, the same family as um, tomato, eggplant, peppers, tobacco. And so that's a completely the other thing different is that I don't know how many of you folks, uh, I know Freedom, I know you, and I know the people that garden know this, but I, I don't think that a lot of people realize the difference between going to a store and selecting one of the two or three varieties of, say, tomatoes that they have there. Uh, you eat those tomatoes, but then you you take some uh, you take some type of an heirloom plant and you plant that and you harvest that fruit and you eat them. You eat them side by side. There's a for me there's a huge difference in the way they taste. It seems like they've uh, they've developed the, the taste right out of a lot of tomatoes. Well, part of it is they're they're um, picking them when they're green and they're um, putting them usually in a gas environment. I believe it's ethylene, and letting that ripen as they're being driven from the field to the uh, Kroger's or whatever. And um, there's nothing better than vine ripened tomatoes. Another thing is when they deplete the soils and they don't put back those 16 essential elements that we talked about at the beginning of the show, um, those elements, those chemical elements, those fertilizers, actually are the things that produce the wonderful uh, taste. And the fields of America have been depleted through um, not proper crop rotation, using chemicals to uh, uh, pesticides too much. And when the pesticides are used too much, the top six inches of the soil doesn't have that microbiologic activity that it should. There's just lots of reasons why that tomato plant is not going to produce like it is in your own backyard. And it is true. Remember, it was uh, the breeds, the hybrids that the tomato farmer is going to pick are going to be so that there's no bruising from field to the Kroger's, whereas you in your backyard are breeding for taste. And that's exactly, I think you're going to find, um, uh, when you use heirlooms, you're going to find a a tremendous taste difference. And um, there have been studies done um, up at the University of Pennsylvania that demonstrate that when there's a 14-day gap between uh, picking the bean and bringing it to the plate, that bean loses at least 50% nutrition versus you walking out of your um, kitchen and picking up what you're going to put in a stew pot. It's such a different way to live, and that's another reason why I just love the fact that we're getting America more healthy by having a family garden. Right, and then folks need to realize, too, that when they are planting their their gardens, they're going to have to, they need to really take some time 
and plan this out uh, because you don't want you don't want all your tomatoes getting ready at the same time like we were talking about earlier. You don't want all your squash or, or whatever it is you're growing. You don't want it to all be ready at once uh, unless you're going to unless you're planning on canning it. But even then, you just, you still don't want it all ready at once. So what you need to do is is plan out your garden and then. Don't plant everything right at once. You're planting it uh, in a staggered uh, formation so that that they're not all coming ripe at once. So it takes a That's little right. bit of planning to get this to get this right, especially if you're going to be using all the stuff yourself. That's correct. Now let's just talk beans. Beans. If you um, want to have beans all summer and you're going to use bush beans, then every two weeks you're going to go ahead and do another planting. And that way you're going to have a successive harvest. Or you could go ahead and plant pole beans. Pole beans um, will produce continuously for a 10- to 12-week period. So you've got those two, two ways that you could do it. For my families that have lots of, let's say they have a pool in their backyard, then they're going to prefer to go with the pole bean approach. It's going to grow up, you know, the fence in their backyard, and they will have continuous beans that way. The same with um, the tomatoes. We talked about this when we were discussing canning. Um, if you get an um, uh, indeterminate tomato, then that tomato is going to produce tomatoes in small batches throughout the whole summer, like your large cherry red. You want that for your salads every two or three days. That's fantastic. But the determinant, which are the bush-style tomatoes, those would produce for the dehydrating that you would do or the mass canning that you would do because that harvest is going to come due in a two-week period. So if you want the Marglobe um, variety, which is the bush variety, then you're going to have to, and you want it throughout the whole summer, then you're absolutely right. You're going to have to plant it like every three weeks in order to um, get that particular breed of tomatoes to be available throughout the entire 12-week summer. Do you use red worms with your compost? Um, I don't do red worms with my compost because I do hot composting, and that would kill my red worms. Right, so, right. So it is important to have a separate area. You, in, in the organic world, you do want to do hot composting, and that means the temperature of your compost heap is going to get between 130 and 160. 60, 160 would be about the hottest you would let it get. Um, but you've got to have at least one meter cube amount in order for it to get to that chemical reaction. And when you get it that hot, you're going to be killing off the weed seeds. That's why, one of the reasons you want it to get there. And it will kill off a bun- bunch of pathogens you don't want as well. Now, okay. you don't want to kill your red worms, so you would have them in a little cooler environment. But they're very, very nice. They produce their own um, manure, which is called uh, vermiculite, not vermiculite, but vermiculture. And right. um, worm growing is vermiculture. And... Um, their tailings or castings are fantastic to jumpstart your garden because they're full of nitrogen and a lot of other good things. Right, okay. but you can also you can make sure that whenever you like, I've got three bins, 
and one is the one is the hot bin. Right. One is the the bin that's uh, where it's ready, uh, but it's I'm still making sure it's kind of cooling down. And then I've got the bin that I'm working out of, and that one's just that one's is no longer active and hot. And right. uh, I make sure that uh, I make sure that I don't take that I don't always take all of that away. So there's always a, a huge handful of the worms left on that third bin that, that are left in there. Yeah, that's great. Well, what are the things that folks that they could do right now? Say they listen to the show tonight and they said, you know what? They, I'm convinced. I'm convinced. And I'm going to start right now. Uh, what are what can folks start doing right now, today, tomorrow, that can help them get ready uh, to be able to to start and run a working garden? What what would you be your recommendations for folks? Well, I would I would get a seed bank, and of course I'm very um, you know susceptible to saying, hey, ours is the absolute best out there, but. Um, that's the reason we're in existence is we couldn't find anything that could come up to what we knew people were going to need. You're going to make sure that you have the literature. So at the very least, you're going to want to have the two beginning books and the seed bank book. Um, you're going to want to have those because, like I said, if electricity goes away, if there's an economic event, you're not going to have uh, the opportunity to go to Kmart, Walmart, Lowe's, Home Depot and get these things. A, it could be too dangerous to go to those places. You're going to want to hunker, hunker down. Um, but I would get my infrastructure in, and in most cases in Texas, that means putting in raised beds. Get your irrigation system in. Now, those things you can do and not even you know, worry about uh, planting a, a winter crop right now. Then you'll be totally ready for the spring. But that infrastructure is a surprising amount of work. You're going to put in healthy dirt. You're going to put in six to eight inches of uh, boards around so that your bed's no, no wider than four foot wide. Um, you're going to want a drip irrigation system so that you're maximizing your water savings. Um, the team that's working with me is thinking about ways of catching rainwater harvest and storing yeah. that water. So those are some things that are some big issues because without water, this is, you know, a non-workable situation. So when we think like that, um, then we get the pieces of the puzzle, the cart before the horse kind of thing we don't want to uh, do. Um, we want to do it in a very logical way. So I would get my infrastructure in and then be ready to go. Um, I would even start some seed trays inside this um, spring so that when your frost, your last frost date, and you can call your agri-life people, your county extension agent, find out when that is, or Google it. Um, but you want to have your plants probably a foot tall that you've been working on, growing them indoors, to be ready to put them out um, so that they're, they're um, all ready for that spring. And uh, you guys are going to be very successful. Well, that's what – that's – that is a, a perfect way to do it, and you can also tell. It also helps you tell like what seeds, because I do have some older seeds that I still try and use, because I like to to use them up. I don't want to throw up anything away, but I also don't want to plant it directly into the uh, into the uh, the beds, because I don't know what's going to come up and what's not. So I start them 
and the you know the like the little plastic seed packets. I mean the the little planters. You know like the ones you can get from the stores where they started the uh, the seeds. But I can get those uh, I get those from the throwaway piles at uh, okay. at some of the bigger stores, and then I just rinse them with Clorox in a big uh, garbage can. And, That's uh, absolutely the right technique. You got it. Because then you're not transporting any disease into your own garden. And uh, that's great. You're doing it just right. Right. And, and then start the seeds. And I I can put, uh, you know, an, an extra amount of seeds, um, you know, enough that I'm, I'm sure I'll get uh, one or two viable seeds. I'll start them indoors and then just pinch off, uh, you know, the, pick the, the one or two best ones and then pinch the rest off. And then they're ready to go straight out into your beds, and you can get uh, the most uh, the most out of your growing season. Although, like you said, a lot of times here in Texas, we're we're lucky with uh, with being able to almost you know, some years skate all the way through without uh, a hard freeze. And I found that row covers will bring the temperature up as much as five degrees extra. So. Um, I've been very successful in the Houston environment, uh, being able to garden year-round. Scott, you were saying well, you were putting, washing the seeds from the store in bleach? No, the, uh, no, no, no. The, the packet, uh, the, um, the black uh, containers need okay. to be cleansed. <laughs> with a 10% bleach solution, 90% water, and you can use a mister and spray, you know, spray that on and then just rinse it with clear water. You don't want any Clorox or chlorine uh, to be left um, as a residue on that black container. Another thing you can do that's pretty cheap is you could use um, egg cartons. I've done, I've raised yeah. seeds in egg cartons before. So I'm yeah, all about saving extra money. <laughs> <laughs> so when yeah, you're starting you the seeds, you're making sure that they're that they're sterilized or clean. Yeah, you would go ahead and wipe them down, same as okay. you would um, the other containers. And that's a yeah, good habit sure to that... get into anyway. Anytime you um, prune or whatever, you're again going to use an alcohol wipe to make sure the blades of your um, pruners, trimmers, um, are not going to transport a disease from one you know, part of your orchard to another part. Yeah, I've got a, uh, I've got a big industrial size uh, can of Lysol that I use on my pruners. I even spray it on my chainsaw to make sure that uh, I'm not bringing, bringing anything from one tree to the next. Yeah, that's very smart. Hmm, interesting. Well, uh, there is, uh, there are the... Uh, the seeds and the and the books. Uh, is there anything else that uh, once folks have got their seeds, they've got a seed bank, and they got it from you guys. Once they've got their seed bank, uh, and uh, and the the knowledge bank too, in the form of the books or or whatever that they've used their notes or whatever. Anything else that you would uh, advise folks to get as uh, as the next in line for must-haves? Um, I would recommend the Mitlighter Method Garden Book, which we sell for twenty dollars. We do not have it listed at this time on our 
uh, computer uh, page yet, but um, we are converting all of our test gardens into that method because we're so impressed with the spectacular uh, production. It, it does circles around the square foot garden method, which is, like I said, a great place for people to start and get their feet wet, but um, we want them to get up to maximum production, and the Mitlighter method will certainly do it. I've been gardening since I was a little kid, and uh, I cannot believe you know, the techniques that this guy has used and, and uh, pioneered all over, in, all over the world in very adverse conditions, and yet he's consistently able to get very, very huge yields with high BRICS indexes. And BRICS is, the, um, is a measurement of the nutritional value of those particular vegetables. And so well, that's that's see, all new to me. I mean, uh, yeah, I'll have to I'll have to grab that and read it because that's that's very new to me. But also, folks that are you have folks that that live out rurally or in or in uh, suburban areas and stuff like that. They, you know, they they think that uh, that or they have more room to produce uh, to plant gardens and stuff like that. But even in the city, you can produce uh, just out of uh, out of container gardening, you can produce a lot of food uh, to supplement. And I'm not talking about just to survive on it, and I don't think that you should be thinking about it that way, uh, no, matter what, uh, no matter what we've talked about tonight. You shouldn't be thinking about this as just in case of survival. You should be thinking about this as an everyday thing. If you go down to the store and you buy, uh, you buy the dollar a piece bell peppers, then you can see how very quickly uh, it can get very expensive. So you should be, this is something that you should be doing as part of your regular plan for living. But that also means that folks in the cities, you're not, you're not cut out of this because you can grow, uh, even in small containers, you can grow a lot of food. And I know that there was, uh, there were some folks, I believe it was in was it in San Francisco or California recently? The they developed a, uh, uh, I guess, a gardening process in uh, on one tenth of an acre in Pasadena, California. This family has been doing this for years. I lived in Pasadena for ten years myself. Um, they produce six thousand pounds consistently every year, and they sell their excess produce to local high-end restaurants for $50,000 a year. This is out of a tenth wow. of an acre. They, ha they have a house on it, they have a driveway, they have a garage, and then they have their gardens. And, um, and so we even have a, we have a book in our collection of six books called The Backyard Homestead. It shows you how to lay out a quarter-acre subdivision lot. That's the standard lot size in America's subdivisions today. It shows you how that you can produce um, all of the produce that your family is going to need on a quarter acre. That is the good news. It can be done. Wow. So, so there you are. I mean, you can you can produce enough for you and your family on just a a small plot. I, I've seen a lot of these uh, a lot of these folks doing this. And I'm always amazed at how much food they're getting off their little tiny, uh, like you said, a tenth of an acre or a quarter.
an acre of lots. And it's not even filled completely up, but they're just getting a lot of food out of that uh, small area. So just because you're living in the city, it doesn't mean that you can't be growing your own food, and not just in a grid down and survival situation, but for everyday use. And that means that you're getting food that you have, you know, the whole history, the whole providence of that, that thing you're fixing to put in your mouth and eat. You know exactly everything that happened to it. There's nothing extra stuck in there unless you stick it in there yourself. Uh, I think that you can live a lot healthier life that way, and the food is going to taste better, too. Now, you guys also have uh, a great program uh, where other folks can uh, can work with you and sell the Texas Ready Seeds, uh, uh, the products from their sites, right? That's right. And it's called a vendor program, and um, there's an explanation on our website as to what that would involve. Um, at the very base level, they don't even need to stock more than you know the one bank that their own family would buy, and we will drop ship to their friends, family, and, and clients, and we'll also answer any questions that those clients have. Um, and there are brochures that we've got that um, have contact information that that um, any vend- anybody that wants to be a potential vendor could then put his own stamp or uh, label on. Um, it's a professionally done uh, four-color brochure um, so that you're not reinventing the wheel. And, of course, we have our website that um, you, know, uh, you can direct people to. Um, you can be given your own code, similar as to what we've experienced today, for each of the organizations or um, vendors. And uh, if you decide to stock this um, product, then uh, for a $2,000 buy-in, you would buy various sizes and whatever amount of books that you were interested in, then um, you can make it a, you know, a larger amount and, and so forth. So it's, it's done by volume. And uh, many people are doing these um, at, uh, say, farmer's markets that they have in their local community or gun shows. Um, and things like that. And uh, our company will never compete head-to-head with you. Um, we would be happy to train you. Um, and we will never allow any of the vendors to undercut the pricing. So you can be rest assured that if you go to a gun show or some other event, that the pricing that you've been quoting your people will always be the price that uh, you'll find a product on the open market. Well, that's very great. Well, listen, uh, you're on the road a lot because... You're not just selling these seeds. You're you're talking to to folks in the Patriot community and the uh, the self reliance and prepping community a great deal of the year. And you said you're where are you headed to right now? I'm going to Lakeland, Florida. They have a preparation event, and uh, it's a very positive oriented. I wouldn't say that anybody that um, is going to this particular one is of the doomsday. Um, Um, mindset, Um, but they're saying, look, this is a time in history that we've been born, we're going to stand up and we're going to deliver, and we're going to learn the different, you know, tools that we've got to have in our toolkit. Um, Food self-sufficiency is part of that. I'm going to help, you know, do that training. There's other people that are going to do the medical. There's other people who are going to do self-defense. So it's a a collection of vendors um, like myself that are on the road a good bit of the year, 
And uh, we really delight in uh, being able to inform the public um, what it's going to take to be self-sufficient should the need arise. I'm really, and really I, it's, I'm, it's how we take care of our own families and how we're going to take care of our neighbors and uh, our own communities. So we're teaching right. people how to build community in the event of um, a downturn. And I always, I always find this uh, not funny, but kind of strange. And I'm really excited that the self-reliance, the philosophy of self-reliance, is becoming more and more mainstream. Because if you look at at the, our culture, we're only uh, a generation away from a group of of Americans who, if we were talking about about this and say, "Hey, we're really excited about these folks," you know. Be, becoming self-reliant and stuff, they would just they would start laughing because they would say, right. what other way is there? You know, and we've gone so far in, in just a, a generation or two that well, now we can't feed ourselves and, uh, and we don't know how to take care of ourselves like our grandparents did. So I'm really excited that, that folks are deciding to pay more attention to this. We've got a couple of seconds left, but I, I wanted to ask you one last question, and that is, you, you have your own garden. I know that you have for Texas Ready Seeds and stuff, but I know that you've got your probably your own little, uh, at least like a four by four square that uh, where you put your very favorite plant. In and and what is it? What is if you, when you walk out in the gardens and you say, "I'm going to go to my favorite uh, little planting oh, area," okay. what do you find there? Um, I believe that the most um, versatile plant is the aloe plant. You can use it medicinally. If, if someone has an upset stomach, they can chew on it, and um, the juices from the aloe will cure a lot of stomach ailments. Um, so if I had to have one plant, that would be the one I would take. And wow. if it does well in many, many environments. Um, it is uh, transferred like you would a tuber. It's not really grown from seeds, but which is, you know, funny. Uh, here I am. Well, I know that I've, I've seen it in Houston. That's my favorite plant. Yes, you can use I've, it in Houston. I've seen in Houston the, the folks that have had uh, you know, they've had their, their outdoor containers with the aloe plants and stuff in it, and then you'll see, if it's been sitting there for a while, you'll see like aloe growing under it where, where some has fallen off and started growing by itself. Well, listen, uh, I want to thank you uh, uh, very much for taking the time to speak to us tonight. And you can find out more if you will go to... Uh, let me make sure I'm giving this giving this right right here. If you go to Texas Ready, let me see. TexasReady.net. TexasReady.net. You got it. And uh, and thank you very much, uh, Lucinda, for coming and speaking to us tonight. And God watch over and keep you on your travels uh, and get you safely back home. Well, thanks so much. Uh, your audience is great. Thank and, you. Uh, Everybody uh, prepare hard. Thanks All right. Again. Thank you, and, and good night to you. Night. All right, guys, uh, I, I'll just remind you real quick that we have the uh, carving course coming up, and, uh, and we'll see you next Thursday, uh, 7 p.m. Central. Till then, God bless, and uh, to you all.
young, my teacher told me that I was free. And as a child, I grew up programmed by TV. And as a teenage boy, I found out just how free is free. Dragging who we meet, you call this liberty. 